Hi everyone, it's Joaki Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Sean Kauppinen from Hyberworld. We talk about Sean's experience in gaming from three decades and how he's seen startups grow and what mistakes have come along the way. We also talk about Hyber and what the company is doing in the gaming user-generated content space. But first, here's a few words from our sponsors. We all know that developing a great game is one thing, but developing a great games business can be something else entirely. That's why some of the top game developers in the industry use IronSource's Game Growth platform, which takes care of both sides of the business, helping you monetize and to fuel your user acquisition. I for one wish we were using these guys in the early days of Next Games. You might also have heard of their Level Up podcast and a Medium blog. In terms of gaming content, this blog is up there with the best, featuring game industry experts talking all things game design, development, and growth. See for yourself by searching for Iron Source Level Up on Medium or Spotify. Hey, game developer. Are you looking for great new authentic video creatives? Try something totally new with influencer-generated content, IGC, by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific creative content for your games. An opera event will deliver you high-quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Get a free video with a purchase of four or more videos. Remember to say that Elite Game Developers sent you to claim your free video. Go to getigc.com to see some examples and get more information. That's getigc.com. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you here. We have a lot of things to talk about. I, I wanted to start off with the, your background in the games industry and what eventually got you excited about Hyper World in like okay. two or three two or three minutes. Two or three minutes, yeah. <laughs> I've been in the industry a, a long time and I actually started out originally going to, to university because I wanted to study international business, banking and finance. Um, of course, that was based on a great movie I saw when I was a kid, which was Wall Street. Mm. And I turned to my father and asked him, you know, what's that guy do? I want to be like him. And it was, of course, Gordon Gecko, who was a corporate raider who would go in <laughs> and make lots of money off companies and destroy them. So originally, that was part of the goal. It's like, okay, go learn international business, uh, get some languages, and, and do banking and finance. And I realized that was a really boring approach, and you're going to have to wear a suit every day. Mm. And I was like, no, I don't think that's for me. So I went and got a film degree, which we all know how useful having a, a degree in the arts is. So I <laughs> got out of school quickly uh, with selling shoes at a department store and looking for opportunities and in film and I got a, a brief gig with a, a TV show called America's Most Wanted well, working, doing some camera car and operator stuff and, and a little bit of stunt driving, uh, which was great uh, because it gave me exposure to what it was like to be in film production. But I realized it wasn't really 
something that could pay the bills consistently unless you had a lot of connections already. And I kind of fell into a job at an investor relations firm. I actually started out in the mailroom and noticed that, hey, this is kind of the financial stuff that I was originally looking at. And before you know it, there's the holidays come around and all the people who have all their seniority are taking their vacation. And I don't have any vacation yet. So I'm manning the phones. I'm in the office in case something crazy happens. And I realized that Activision is one of our accounts and we do the investor relations for them. And this is, this is 1995. And that holiday season, there were two games that they kind of had out. And one was called uh, Pitfall the Mayan Adventure, which was on PC. And another one was called Hyperblade. And instead of working for about a week, I literally played Hyperblade probably six hours a day and then took long lunches. So it kind of kind of got me really excited about the idea of, wow, how can I, how can I do something related to games? Because this is really fun. I know that you get to play a lot of games when you're in the game industry. And just kind of fell into it after that. Did some public relations, ended up uh, working for an emulator company called Bleem back in 99, 2000, where we made it so you could play your PlayStation games on a PC with hardware acceleration. Um, I worked at 3DFX uh, on a couple of the Voodoo launches and then went to Ubisoft and third-party publishing, doing, doing PR and, and marketing for hundreds of games, games that you know many people cherish like uh, Baron the Big Blue House for PlayStation 1 and uh, you know Jackie Chan Adventures for Game Boy Advance, but all the way up to, to some of the, the better titles like Rayman 3 and, uh, and some of the, the cool things we had that holiday season. And I ended up at, at Sony Online after that, um, working on EverQuest 2, a lot of different online games. Star Wars Galaxies was one I worked on. And when I say worked on, these are normally in, in marketing or, or PR capacities. Uh, up until when was it about 2005 uh, moved back up to San Francisco and was running an agency for, for a friend at the time and we basically started getting everybody as a client so everyone from EA and Disney uh, LucasArts Namco Bandai Namco and Bandai when they merged jammed at before it got bought by EA so got really introduced to a large quantity of, of, of games and companies and after, after a few years, I kind of realized that it was, it was great. I liked running things, but I kind of wanted to focus on things that I liked, you know, focus on just projects I wanted to do. And I think that was probably my first midlife crisis. You know, <laughs> I want to work with people that I like because not just because they can pay, but because, you know, if we have success, I, I want these people to be successful. And so I left and had, uh, had two clients at first. One was, she Interactive, which is now Pickpock down in New Zealand. And the other one was uh, Streamline Studios out of Amsterdam, which are now based mostly out of Malaysia. So both those companies are still alive and doing well, thank goodness. Uh, but for about 10 years, I really, really went around the world and consulted different studios on how to build up their company, the fundraising process. I was the interim CEO for Frogster when they set up an American subsidy and then it was subsidiary and it was bought by uh, GameForge. I went and worked in, in Israel at Revolver 3D doing uh, 3D on the web for, for a couple of years. Um, and then there was a company out of Singapore where we were doing progressive download technology. So really been around the block a lot and had yeah. seen literally everything, I thought, um, until Nordic Game 2019, 
uh, one of one of my my usual things is when you show up to to a, a foreign country and you know they lose your bag. Mm-hmm. I, I never dress appropriately on the plane. I'm always in shorts and and something comfortable and flip flops. So they had lost my bag, and I'm walking around uh, normal in shorts and flip flops. And as you know, <laughs> you kind of stand out as an American when you're doing that. <laughs> but regardless, uh, I have some friends. Uh, in the industry, and one of them was saying, "And you've got to check out this thing this guy's got. It's super cool." So I met this guy. His name's uh, Michael Ingforce, and he had something on his phone, and it looked like Roblox meets Minecraft meets. Oh my God, what are you doing there? Uh, and my friend was thinking about investing in this company, and I took a look at it. I was like, "This is this is amazing. This is such a big opportunity." And I think that because they were Swedish, they they were kind of underselling it because it's just it's natural not to be boastful uh, yeah. or overconfident. And so my my healthy dose of of Americanness comes in and looks at it and goes, "This is worth billions of dollars. We should do something." <laughs> so, <laughs> Good. So really you know, went went home, told my wife about this awesome thing, and she said, "Well, you got to get on a plane, go see him, go see what it's all about." So, Flew out, met the team. It was, you know, I think there were three full-time people and then uh, one part-time who was helping out on nights and weekends and then a couple interns. And I saw this thing. I was like, this team is awesome. I can't believe they've achieved this. And then uh, on that trip, they also showed me the things that they hadn't shown the investors yet. Well, I was like, why didn't you show this stuff to them? You could have made more money. <laughs> so, <laughs> and again, that's the, you know, well, you know, you just want to be really, really confident before we show it to everybody. So they're just fantastic people and hugely talented. And I, you know, in my mid forties at that point, basically, you know, begged to get on the team. I was like, please, can I get on this team? This is amazing. And I want to be a part of it. And they, they found, found some of my skills useful. (laughs) So I have an opportunity. And since August of 2019, I've been, serving as the, the chief strategy and marketing officer for, for Hyper. And uh, one of the other fun things right now is I'm also helping with our, our data protection and uh, compliance stuff. So I do a, a wide range of things over here. Everything from working on the legal to operations, partnerships, uh, business development, marketing. Uh, but, but everybody's got their hands in everything because it's a, a true startup culture and and everyone has an oar and everybody's rowing as fast as we can in the right direction. So, yeah, like before we go to more to Hyber, I wanted yeah. to talk about that cultural kind of like difference there. Like the Swedes, super polite, humble, yes. like too much, maybe. Like that's, of course, in Finland, it's the same. Yeah, and yeah. It's all over in the Nordics. Like, what could like the people in the, in the Nordics learn from how people like in the US? do games and the other way around what could people in the u.s learn from the nordics what do you think um i'll I'll start with you know what what can the nordics learn from from the u.s and how they build games i think that in the u.s there's a lot of confidence uh, based off of you know gut feelings at first and i think it's been more data driven uh, more recently ever since really zynga got in the market I, i looked at zynga originally as it was an internet company 
that was yeah. trying to do games because they, they called players users. And that actually rubbed me the wrong way for the longest time. Um, but it's become kind of the vernacular now. It's, it's standard. Everyone talks about the users uh, of these games. So it, I think it's lost the derogatory nature of it. But, it, but it really, yeah. I think there's more confidence in the U.S. that when, when you're on something, you're like, yeah, we can predict this is how it's going to go. And I think in the Nordics, it's more about being cautious. Um, and when you take a risk, it, it's more data-driven and informed. There's not a whole lot of flying by the seat of your pants. But I also think that things are, are more cost-effective. And in the Nordics, people aren't worried about a lot of the things that you might worry about in daily life in the U.S., like uh, healthcare issues or uh, school, or how am I going to save up for college for my kids? Because it's already taken care of in a lot of ways. I think that's just, it, it gets people the ability to, to kind of focus on really what that mission is of creating a great experience or building something new that people have never seen before and they, they drop their jaw. So if, if nothing else, I think the Americans can learn from, let's figure out how, how not to be distracted with all the other things that happen in life and maybe, maybe not be so confident. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. There's, yeah. there's opportunities on both sides for, for people to, to have more, more success. Mm. Yeah. When I'm looking at companies to, to start helping and maybe doing some angel investing, I, I think it's like, if I see some way that they're breaking the cultural norm in where they're located, what the mm. geography is like, if it's like something that they're talking about users versus players, it's super mm. interesting. It's not always the, you know, it might not be the optimal way, but there's, at least something that they're doing differently, that they're thinking about things differently. Yeah. Like how do you bootstrap versus like getting permission from investors to proceed with like yeah. your idea first. <laughs> things like like that. Like there's there's so many cool things. Uh, yeah, it's 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 totally different. The, the world of consulting where you come in and you can you can take that view of of, of the company and the perspectives and you, you get the insights really quick because you're not in it every day. Mm. You know, hey, you know, these people over here, they don't seem to be bought into the, to the message. And, yeah. you know, I, I used to run those lifeboat drills. Like, Hey, if you're running out of money and you've got three months of runway, how can you stretch that to, to five or six? And who would be the people you put in the lifeboats first uh, that you save? And you always find that there's like in a larger team, maybe it's 40 people. There might be two or three people that no one on that team names in any of the boats. <laughs> and like, mm, well, yeah. these people, what, so what's the issue with that? Or they may have, you know, a negative attitude or they're just hard to work with. And I think that comes down to, to like culture, right? Mm. Um, yeah. I don't even know where I'm going with this. It's just, yeah. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think you get a great opportunity to, to, to see how companies run from, from that perspective. That's true. Yeah. Then talking about hyper world, like what is it? Like, what is it? So yes. the, the core tenant behind what we're doing is we're giving people and mostly Generation Z and probably Generation Alpha after that, the opportunity to express themselves uh, using games as a medium. And I think in a lot of ways, we're redefining what really a game is because they're not all really games. They don't all have a goal. Uh, they don't all have scoring. They don't all have uh, time tracking, things like that. But you could, you could build a platformer game. You could build a, a first-person shooter without any need to code on a mobile device, which is great. But at the same time, 
you could also build something where you can just hang out or a memorial to your dog that passed away and people go in and they interact and they chat and they, they comment. So I think on, on one level, it looks a little bit like a Roblox or a Minecraft. And then when you really dig below the surface a little bit, you start to realize that it, it's an emerging social platform and that's, you know, this generation wants to be able to express themselves in a different way and they love games. So it's the perfect medium for them to, to create things that express themselves. Thinking about this UGC, user-generated content platforms, there's there's a lot of hype around there. Manticore just raised a big round. You guys raised a round. There's a lot of capital going there. Yeah. What do you think are the beliefs and differentiators does Hyper have that others don't and how does that show up in the discussions that your guys are having in the yeah. you know, with the team? And like, what do you think about the audience aspect there? First, uh, absolutely want to congratulate Manticore on on the epic investment. It, mm. it looks like it's going to be a really slow acquisition, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> clear, clearly, <laughs> Epic's the uh, the front rider who would want to buy them because could they're giving be, people be. an opportunity to to develop games. Uh, it, without the the need to really know how to how to code as well, but yep. looking at them, I think they're really on the high end. They're you know that that A to double A kind of level. Um, mm. Recently, they had a, a contest for Dungeons and Dragons, and I think they had a, 150 entries, and they had over 100 hours of gameplay. So they're right. they're doing some really cool things. But I believe that they're targeting a very specific group of people uh, mm. versus the really large mass market audience. Um, Roblox is is absolutely targeting a, a large audience with UGC as well. But in order to create, you have to learn uh, Lua and you have to download their creative studio. And the point about both of those, those companies and, and both of those products that they're putting out so far is neither one of them allow you to create on a mobile device. Mm. And that's one of our biggest differentiators is we're really focused on making sure that that mobile experience is there because the generation we're trying to hit does everything on their phone. They're 24 seven connected with that mobile device. And if we can remove all the barriers for them to be able to jump in, create and send messages through games or express themselves through games, then we're really hitting more of that mass group of, of, you know, 2 billion people who are, are in the Gen Z versus, you know, the, several tens of thousands who want to build kind of a Fortnite style game or, you know, a higher end game. So there's places in the market for everybody. Yeah. Um, and absolutely we're big fans of, of what the other UGC platforms are focused on because we're, we're all just hitting different notes uh, in, in kind of a symphony of a generation that wants user generated content and the ability to, to use these games as their medium. Yeah, yeah, the whole self self expression with the phone. I think yeah. That's what what comes up really interesting from you for you guys. It's sort of by default in the Nordics, we might like skew towards the mobile as the, the main platform. Versus, yeah. I have I have the feeling that the the US based uh, developers are more like, hey, it's PC uh, console. That's where the creators will be. But uh, yeah, there there is a great like aspect there like the all the growth has been happening on mobile side like exactly explosive growth so it's it's, it's amazing if you look at we have a new console generation coming really soon and it's exciting i've been around since you know playstation one actually a little bit before that and you watch these these generations 
go through. And there's always people, oh man, we've been working on this mobile stuff over here, but look at what we could do on, on the new Xbox. or look at what we could do on the new PlayStation. And a lot of those bigger studios kind of died off when the PS4 and, and Xbox One came out uh, because there was, a, there was another console transition where people realized that it's a very large investment uh, to put into to these games and taking two to three years to put something in, in the market that's unproven is hard. And that's why you get the, the sequelitis where, you know, when's, when's the next version of, of Call of Duty coming out? When's the next version of Battlefield? Because um, it's hard to prove a new franchise when you're spending a hundred plus million dollars in development and then 500 million on marketing. So, yeah, like that aspect of doing stuff on mobile, it's anyways going to be like much faster to see what's going on, what's happening. And you can, you can react, you can, you can succeed or fail so fast in, yeah. in mobile that if you're putting money into a business, you know, you look at a traditional console studio, it's really hard to put money there, yeah. you know, versus, well, you're, you're going to need a much smaller investment in order to prove something. Exactly, and then yeah. if it's successful, there's a lot of opportunities out there to, to build that monetization and acquisition engine because people are willing to invest in a receivable. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Like the bigger the round or something that's really early means that there's few years before you see that it's proven enough that you can do the next round or that you're profitable enough. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. And you want you want the team to be if you're making an investment, you want the team to be hungry enough that they're going to work hard in a, in a shorter period to deliver sure. something. Yeah, you know, and I think that's if you feel like you have a lot of time people tend to procrastinate and get to where it's like, Oh, well, we have plenty of time. Yeah. We've got, yeah. we've got two years. We've got 18 months before you know, it's like, Oh no, we've got six months. We need to go raise. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it is like that, man. It's like, you know, you raise 2 million in Nordics and 20 in the States. You're yeah. still going to have the same runway exactly, and achieve the same. Like, and and the team size, team size is the same too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, talking about UGC worlds, I want to deep dive a bit into that area, that mm-hmm. realm. Why do you think these worlds are better business than they were 10 years ago? What's what's happening now? Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest things that has changed in the last 10 years is influencer culture. Right? We didn't yeah. have really influencers. Um, I know 10 years ago when I wanted to find out what was happening in, in games, I'd be like looking for the new PC gamer or going to IGN or GameSpot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those, I mean, that was your daily routine. Oh, they're making an announcement here and it's a formal press release. And now, you know, I, I love watching Twitch and YouTube. And, and I think generationally, there's people trust Dr. Disrespect or Shroud or, you know, mm. co-carnage more than they would trust somebody who's you know, working at a large media company, even though these yeah. people have ultimately become entertainers and, and large media personalities. Uh, but I think it's the authenticity of the influencers that has really driven the idea about user-generated content. And you can track that from video or uh, YouTube and then now TikTok where you know, everyone can be an influencer and go out there and, and develop an audience by being themselves or doing something that's, that's trending. Yep. And I think that it falls over into the game side. So if I can build a game and I don't need to have to learn to code in order to do it, that's really attractive. I can show my friends that, that I've got some skills or I can make a challenge that, uh, 
that I can see if they can beat it. And it gives us you know, really a conversation piece. That's what it is. But, but influencers are, are really the big driver in what's changed UGC's success over the years, in, in my opinion. So if you think about influencer, there, there's there's a few words here I want to kind of like talk to you about. There's influencers and you got creators, mm-hmm. uh, which could mean the same thing. But can you talk about that? And what are the drivers there on the UGC platforms for these people to emerge uh, and like earn a living? Yeah, we don't have our monetization in yet, but absolutely believe that there will be people in the future who actually make a living off of our platform. Um, and we've we've already started to identify people who just make really great, awesome games using whatever limited asset set we have released at this point. And they do things that we don't expect. You know, they they had created water. They, the users or creators created water in in our system by merging together a couple different physics objects and some transparency before we actually went and formally deployed water ourselves. And we're like, how did they do that? So (laughs) looking at a creator, anybody can create and probably about a third of the people on our platform are, are creating at this point. We don't really have an onboarding experience in place so much right now. It's kind of just go in and and explore, but we have a generation that's growing up on, on things like Minecraft where it's about exploration and figuring out how to do things yourself versus being guided. And I think some of that more guided acquisition of what the skill sets are in order to, to go through and, and make a game is, is probably needed to, to grow the creator part of this. But you know, at the same time, the best creators are now becoming influencers and tastemakers. So they'll find somebody new who they like and post their game link up at the top of, of one of their games and pin it and say, this is somebody up and coming. You got to check them out. Check out Genji Gamer. This, this title that they made is awesome. So yeah. our you know, first generation of, of creators has become the first generation of influencers. And they're yeah. kind of nurturing the second generation of creators and influencers. And the, the great thing is each one of these generations are happening very quickly. I mean, this is, you know, three to six months in a generation right now mm-hmm. that they're getting better and better and they're really expanding the, uh, the, the community because it's, it's a nice place to, to do things. We tend to have, have good people on the platform. Obviously things change over time, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're going to strive to make it a really fun, inclusive place where people can express themselves and, and feel that they have a voice and, know that this team is going to listen to what they have to say and give them better and better creative tools to mm-hmm. really paint their future or or use games as as that palette to to create yeah the the thing with the the creators is they have their own audience and mm-hmm. you guys are basically the the tools that the creators will use to to drive the audience in yeah. and generate better value to their audience like mm-hmm. have you thought about this um how do you include the early adopters are you thinking about like discord channels with uh with the the most like top creators so that you're getting the best information from them what's the approach there we absolutely have a a great thriving discord community and there are people that we've reached out with in the to in the community and said hey we really like what you're doing we want to get you into some programs where you kind of look at stuff before it goes out and we get your feedback is, are these tools going to be effective or these things that you'd want to work with? You know, do you like what we're doing here? And 
we have we have a great community manager uh, who listens to all the stuff and gets to the point with with uh, with the team on, on a regular basis. I mean, many times per day. Hey, we're getting this feedback from users. Uh, can we do this for these users? Is there is there a way that we can bring back this avatar that people like maybe for the holidays? And he really has his his fingers on the pulse and just gives us great insight into to what that community wants. So. Yeah, it's it's sort of different from like what I used to work in gaming. There was a VIP Slack channel or something for players. Yeah. <laughs> but those those channels really it's sort of harder to bring out actionable, you know, knowledge from there versus yeah. when you have creators who are basically like they're creating the next thing that you guys are like you wouldn't have the knowledge of what what comes into their minds yeah. so that it's it's even more actionable i think on your end absolutely i mean if you go back you know 16 17 years working on on the everquest franchise we'd have fanfares where we'd meet people in person and then we'd talk to the guild leaders to find out what they wanted because they had large groups of people mm. who were all subscribing and they yep. influenced them if if fires of heaven which was a, a large guild at the time I don't know if they're they're still around because they've kind of fallen out of the MMO space the last couple of years, but they could you know move a thousand people in and out of your game if they liked it or didn't like it. So you wanted to get their feedback, and I think over time you just have to make sure that you're balancing the feedback of your your hyper achievers, the people who are at the high end of the content, and not let the you know the one percent influence the rest of it so much that. It makes it so you, you know, ignore onboarding experiences or, you know, what's the new player experience and how do we tune funnel? So, <laughs> yeah, that all makes sense. Then thinking more about like that operating a UGC world, like talking about just operating this kind of live service. So what, what data do you use to inform your decisions on, you know, what do we do next with the product? We have brought in a, a really talented uh, Data business intelligence specialist uh, who's now our director. He comes from the EA Need for Speed team mm. and really helped us build out our, our telemetry. Um, we, we use a, a service that helps us with some of these things. They're kind of new. Uh, I'll check and see if I can mention them later, but they're fantastic um, friends for, for many years and they've, they've just been working with, uh, with Lucas Archive to kind of really ramp up what we're doing with the data. And I would say mm. one of the greatest things that we've, we've learned so far is we were featuring games based on what looked cool, what looked like it would be a fun experience. Like, wow, they spent a lot of time on this. And then we started to look at the data and go, oh my God, this game's so incredibly hard. You know, there's people are dying so much and it has such a low completion rate. Is that the new, new user experience that we want to drive people towards? So yeah. even since we just brought our, our data specialist in about a month ago, we've started to to make some more informed data-driven decisions about that, that featuring process. Like can, can we make sure that the games that are on the front page, you know, there's a very good chance you're going to be able to complete that. So you have a positive experience versus, you know, rage quitting after you die two times because the third try on something is just too painful, um, which matches the audience too, because, they, they have the eight-second attention span or eight seconds for you to prove it to, to the users. 
uh, in Gen Z versus the full 12 seconds we had with millennials. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, sure. we're losing time. We have to be, we have yeah. to be kind of instant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To build on top of like having the whole team think about this data informed model. How, how do you? Yeah. That? Yeah. That's, that's what we're, we're putting into the culture, which is we, we know what we believe and now we're going to prove what's true. And I think the entire team is looking at that, like, what's the feedback? Do people really like this asset or not? What's the cost in maintaining this asset over time? If you know, we put in a texture, it's in 10 games, but then we're going to have to go put in a bunch of, of work versus the other 350,000 games, then we might not continue to support that in future things and kind of you know, sunset it so we can put our efforts into things that people really care about. And that's, that's it's really just taking the, the feedback from users, mixing it with the, the data. Like, hey, they're all saying this. Look, look, it doesn't say it over here. How do we rectify the situation and, and kind of take these two, two points and find the happy medium? You know, maybe it's not affecting as many people as we think, but the vocal uh, minority of very vocal people out there is saying this is a yeah. huge issue. Um, yeah. But it all comes down to, to just having good data making sure that it's high quality and that you're looking at it. I think that's, that's the most important part. You can have all the data in the world, but if you're not looking at it and kind of mm. knowing what you're looking for, yeah, then you're, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sort of my takeaway from working with gaming data is that I think the most benefit you get from asking this, these first principle questions, really like why, <laughs> like, and, and then that, that really invo- like involves people's lives suddenly you're thinking about how how they're using their mobile phone if it's a mobile game what does that mean like why are we seeing you know better engagement with this part of the game versus that part like and it's it's super cool when you have that like okay here's the numbers but let's have this big ass discussion on like what are the first principle things here I'm a big fan in heat mapping too. It's like, okay, mm. where are people touching on this? And one of the most interesting things, so Unity, you know, I just flew to Europe. So Unity has the little pop-up for, for cookies and stuff like that when you're looking at a Unity ad within another game. And I, I play Empires and Puzzles all the time. Plug them. Great, great game. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but I, of course, watch the ads to get some extra gems and things in there. So Unity pops up the thing saying, hey, Check out the uh, check out these privacy things. You can accept them all, or go in to look at the preferences. And because I'm I'm a complete nerd with legal stuff, I go and I look at the preferences. How are they doing this? And it talks about what data they track. And one of one of the things they track is pressure on the screen to prove that you're not a bot. And I was like, that's interesting. If people are tracking that kind of, of telemetry and getting that kind of feedback on the ad network, you think. What can we do on the game side with tracking you know, feedback of, you know, are you putting pressure on this? Are you tapping on this particular thing? And how fast does that happen? We're, we're not at that level of data tracking within, within Hybro, of course, but I'm sure that there's some very smart studios out there that are already doing that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's super interesting what you can really pull out from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's dangerous sometimes. But <laughs> Uh, then thinking about the, the challenges that you guys are facing, can you talk a bit about like what do you feel are the challenges when building this kind of a world? What's what do you still need to figure out? Is there kind of any hindrance that you want to talk about? 
Uh, I'd say the biggest challenge is probably you know, figuring out how to, how to effectively serve the needs of, of different groups of people. Because we have, we have a limited team, obviously. We're, we're 25 people. So we can't do everything at the same time. And there's so many things we want to do. It's like, oh, I want better onboarding or I want to build out a thing where when you walk in, there's not just a block sitting there. What if there was a floor and it, it made it more inclusive for some people who just get scared when they see a single block? Like, what am I supposed to do? Or on the other side, it's like, how do we create a better achievements or a different user experience? So it's, it's really, there's so many ideas because you imagine UGC, well, add UGC plus a creative team of people and the possibilities are endless. Luckily, we've, we've brought in uh, some additional talent recently that knows how to get team focused. So I think we've solved probably our biggest challenge, which is trying to do too many things at once yep. and then and ending up, you know, not having everything be 100% where you want it to be. But but having it, you know, being good enough that, that it works and good enough that it, it looks good, but not as polished as as you want the product to be over time. But then again, we're we're still quote in beta. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I believe that all yeah. the Zynga games are, are still in beta as well. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. All the supercell games are as Yeah, they're all in beta. <laughs> yeah. The question about that's actually getting people or team a bit more focused, like yeah. what kind of resource is that? Is it more like a head of studio, producer? Yeah. Role? We, we brought in a VP of product. Right. So he's also another former EA person who was, was a producer and, and before that a CTO and head of games at a, a social network. So to get that kind of that experience and say, we're a startup, we're, we're running fast. Let's not try and do all these things at the same time. Let's prioritize stuff. Let's look at dependencies. What do we need to do in order to get to this goal in three months, six months, a year? Uh, and it's just really brought in more of that formal structure that you need when you get to 25 people um, that when you were eight, you probably didn't need to do as much because it was just like, that looks like it's on fire. I'm going to run over there and pour water on it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> yeah, the question then is like growth for you guys, like getting virality in user acquisition. Mm -hmm. uh, what's what's kind of like conventional that you are doing, and what's unconventional for growing? Uh, the conventional stuff is is looking at you know YouTube because it's a place where people are just naturally spending a ton of time. So the the audience is is there. They watch videos all day. Um, TikTok's some somewhere we want to explore a lot because I think that there's there's a lot of people who are creating. I think they have ninety plus percent of their audience has has created some sort of a video, loaded some content. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, so it shows that the people are willing to to do stuff there. We've also worked with a couple influencers, done some testing where you know we might do a, a paid. A game where they they shoot a video of them making a game, and had the great unintended uh, outcome of their users or their fans then went and made games for the influencers, and the influencers had to play those games, and they shot video of them playing the games and giving feedback, and then yeah. realized that this is an engagement platform. I can communicate with my audience through this, not just through YouTube or Twitch. So what you start to see is they're going back and forth and. 
the influencer makes a, makes a game. Can you guys beat this? And winner gets X or Y. Oh. And they start going back and forth. So once that engine really gets going, I think we're going to see you know, a lot of hooks out to, to different influencer platforms and kind of just really positioning us as another way to express yourself, but the only real way to do it with games and on a mobile device. Mm. So there's, there's, there's some great things there. And we've, we've seen amazing virality even before we had mobile. There were some schools where you know, we had 10,000 people in a school district playing together. And we had another one where in the UAE, somebody clearly VPNed into the US because that's where we were doing some, some kind of drip advertising to see, you know, can, can we keep a, a certain amount of testers on the platform? And from, from one person who clicked on an ad, we had 6,000 people in, in the UAE playing at a couple of American schools. <laughs> like, where did this come from? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Those are, those are cool things that can happen. Oh, they're great. Yeah. There's, I mean, you, you calculate that K factor. You're like, uh, well, it costs us about a penny. <laughs> yep, yep, yeah. Pretty nice. Pretty nice. So what, what does the roadmap look like for Hyber? Like, becoming a better thing for the audience who is interested yeah. in, in what you guys are doing? Yeah, the, the roadmap is really focused on just improving the experience and improving the, the ability to socially communicate and share. Right now, you know, it's, it's been mostly web-based. And as we've, we've moved into to developing apps and, and making it easier to do things on mobile, I think we've kind of, we've kind of seen that there's a lot of audience that is underserved on different devices, whether they be higher end or lower end devices. And that in order to really address the entire audience, we, we have to go out there and, and get our mobile mobile team really strong and just make sure that we're just giving the best possible experience there where it's, you know, not just in, in the browser on a mobile device. So I think that's, that's one place on the roadmap. And the, the other part really is just keeping that focus and ensuring that we're going to hit certain milestones with, in terms of, users and then eventually our monetization will come in and then hopefully in the future we have that that UGC marketplace where people can go and and do things and create and make a living off of it yeah yeah that's super interesting so it's currently it's only the browser version you don't have an app yet we have an an android app that we've been doing some limited tests on but yeah. that's that's where we're at right now and we do have we have obviously Apps for the other platform in development. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's interesting times. The platform yeah. that shall not be named, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's yeah. It's one of the big ones, but yeah. yeah. Uh, fundraising. You recently raised this two point two million. Uh, congrats on that. That's that's amazing. Like it's great to have more more big companies growing here in the Nordics. So, what do you feel? Like it feels there's a lot of this fear of missing out going on with the investors in this space. And like, what is actually the FOMO that they're having versus actually knowing that where they're putting their money in, like a, a good investment for them. Uh, so do you think the investors really know what they're putting their money into? So a shout out to my CEO who did a, an awesome job of, of really raising the money and telling the story. So I want to make sure Michael gets the credit there. And it's not, not me. Um, yeah. Cause he, he was just fantastic. And we, we raised during COVID. So yeah. we started raising and a week later, the, you know, the world got shut down and I got stuck in Phoenix, Arizona <laughs> for three and a half months. So 
we, <laughs> we learned Zoom and we learned the, the nine hour time difference really well. Uh, but, yeah. you know, we had planned to be going to, to London and all over the place to meet with investors. Yeah. Um, luckily, we, we had already been talking to people for a while and kind of showing them what we were working on. It's pretty, pretty cool because we could demonstrate how we're being successful. And then COVID was interesting for us because before that, we were really reliant upon uh, kids in school kind of showing another friend, hey, look what I built and check this out. And then when, when the lockdown started to happen, people were, were quarantined, not in Sweden, obviously, but in, in the US, which is our core market. We had multiplayer coming out with, with a shooter. And very quickly, people were like, whoa, 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 cease fire, cease fire. No one wanted to shoot anybody in the, in the game because they just want to sit there and chat. So we ah. quickly responded by making a, a game pet called Playgrounds, where you can literally just go hang out with people, chat. You know, it could be a, a soccer a skate park, or it could be a, you know, a stadium, it could be anything, yeah. um, a house, whatever, you, wherever you want to hang out. So yeah. I think we could, in, we could show the investors our user growth based on doing things that allowed people to have more social interaction uh, wow. because they were missing that in person. And it's, it's continued. The, gr- the growth has been fantastic. Yeah. And it's just on top of that, it's culturally uh, something that's, that's changing. People want user-generated content. They want the ability to control, you know, what they're doing. They want to express themselves and show, "I can do this too. I can. I can make a game." Uh, mm. it's, it's amazing the number of Mother's Day cards that weren't actually purchased from Hallmark this year because people went and made Mother's Day games and sent it to their moms. Like, here, mom, <laughs> exactly. play this. This is, <laughs> is, you know, I love mom and blocks, uh, but. Put in some pugs and, and some other fun things that that yeah. kind of represent their love for their mother. So yeah. it's it's fun to see people doing that. You know, I'm sure Hallmark's going to come after us. Like, oh, you're putting the greeting card industry out of business. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's one other business that's just going to go away. Uh, you think you think they're, you know, if they're if they're banning cars that that run off of uh, gasoline in 2035 in California, at what point oh. did they ban, you know, paper physical cards? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Sean, I have some final questions for you. Sure. What's, what's your favorite book and why? I, so I have a couple favorite books, but I'm going to give you just one. And it's, it's called Extreme Ownership, How Our Navy Seals Lead and Win. Mm. And it's by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, who are two ex-Navy SEALs who are now management consultants and they go out and they, they help companies solve problems. And a lot of it's about communication, uh, getting the, the team to kind of buy in to certain things, distributing the management structure and kind of trusting your mid-level managers to make good decisions because they're empowered and they know the mission. Uh, so it's, it comes from the perspective of, of how the military works. But at the same time, I think it's one of the best management consultants consulting books um, I've ever read. So I enjoyed that. And of course, I've read the, the other three books that they've put out since then. So that's, that's probably, probably the big one for me right now. It's trying to get people to, to buy into the idea that you know, the responsibility really lies in, in leadership at the top and that it's our job to empower our, our teams and, and our managers to go out and, and have a culture of not just respect, but also understanding what is our mission why are we doing this? And, you know, to be able to make those operational decisions on the fly when we need to. 
Yeah. I love that book. I because I, yeah. I brought I brought out a book earlier this year on building games company and I quoted extreme ownership a lot in my own nice. book because there's so good stuff there. Like it's yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, I did listen to the first, I think, hour of, of your book on the on the free Amazon things. I was listening. I was like, oh, this is pretty good. I gotta get this. <laughs> I just have to find time, you know. Working at this working at a startup, it's hard to read. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've heard. so do you have a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today oh god just one uh i think i think the biggest thing is yeah i'm gonna give a good story so when i worked at sony online i was doing international product pr and we were working on the the launch for everquest 2 and John Smedley, I respect the, the hell out of that guy who ran Baron Interactive, which became Sony Online. And I was going to Smed's office to talk about something related to marketing at one point. And he brought me in, had, had me take a seat, and the phone rang. He goes, hang on just a second. And he, he picks up, goes on his computer, is like, yep, hey, hang on, let me see. It's right here. He was basically taking a customer service call from one of the users who didn't know that he was the president of the company, that you know, it didn't matter because he wanted to be there and, and understand what the real feedback was from the actual fans and, and the wow. players. And yeah. I looked at that and said, wow, if this guy is doing that and he's getting that perspective on a daily basis, it's not just you know play what you're, play what you're representing and, and believe in what you're doing. It's also, it doesn't matter what level you're at. You need to know who your audience is and you need to listen yeah. to them. And I tons of respect for, for that. And I think that it's guided how I look at when you develop a game, when you publish a game, when, when you operate a game, is that you really, it, it doesn't matter. It, the, both the responsibility of, of taking care of the users falls upon everybody. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't matter how high up in the organization you are, you're, you're never too good to do any job. And it's important to know what people are, are saying on the front lines. You know. Mm. Yeah, man, that's a good one. Yeah. Hey, last question. People like in the game industry, especially entrepreneurs, if they want to hear kind of like about Hiber, about like your experiences with startups, like what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Oh, I'm a I'm a fan of of people looking me up on LinkedIn, sending me send me messages, or you know, Sean at Hiberworld.com works as well. S E A N. The proper Irish way to spell a good Finnish name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll leave the story about your surname for the. <laughs> Thanks so much, Sean. This was great. Thank Thanks you. For... It's been very, very fun. <laughs> yeah. Hey, take care, man. You too. Have a great day. Bye bye. The new online course, Pitch Your Games Company, is live on the Elite Game Developers website under courses. If you're looking to raise funding for your game startup and want to know what it's all about, I recommend that you take a look. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye.